With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Within this old house live two residents. One of them is John Russell, composer professor the other has been dead for over 70 years claire i'd like to talk to you about the house did you die in this house how did you die trying desperately to communicate. What is it in that house, Claire? What is it doing? Why is it trying to reach me? It's a hand. something of the senators he wants it back Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Axel Cohagen. A proud George C. Scott Sideburns aficionado. Also with me this week is Mr. Andrew Jupin. Hello there. 
This week we are discussing the 1980 spook fest, The Changeling. The film stars George C. Scott as a pianist and composer who loses his wife and daughter in a terrible traffic accident. A few months later, he begins a new job and settles into an old house that's filled with secrets. The film was written by Diana Maddox and William Gray and was directed by Peter Madak, who we'll hear from later on in the show. Just a word of warning, we'll be going into some spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen The Changeling yet after 36 years, then go ahead, turn off the podcast, watch the movie, and come back. We'll still be here. Axel, when was the first time you saw The Changeling, and what did you think? I first saw The Changeling in, it was, I think, 1995. A friend of mine and I had a 20-movie marathon where we watched 20 movies we hadn't seen before in two and a half days. And we picked The Changeling to be our anchor movie because we had seen the big, I think it was the Warner Brothers clamshell case with the chair on it. And I always assumed it had to be the scariest thing ever. We watched it last, and I think we both enjoyed it, but had our expectations built up too highly. Then as I got older and rewatched it, and I think understood a little bit more about loss and grief than I did as a junior in high school, I, I appreciated it on a whole different level. I first saw this in, I guess it was the early 2000s. It was a total accidental find at the blockbuster in where this is the true story i was leaning down to pick up a vhs tape of some leprechaun sequel and as i put it in my hand i just thought you don't want to do this and i put it back and then immediately to the right of this leprechaun sequel was the changeling and funny enough just like axel i saw the wheelchair you know and then the the shadow of the kid you know in the wheelchair on the wall and was like oh this might be a dead kid movie this sounds eerie uh, uh and and picked it up and went went home and watched it immediately yeah that video box was something i remember from my days of cleaning the shelves at blockbuster and was one of those that i guess it was pretty close to black roses it was definitely the scariest area of the video store to have black roses with that awesome 3d cover and then having this one with that creepy freaking wheelchair on the on the front of it but for some reason it just took me a long time to finally get around to it and it really andrew i have you to thank for it because this had been on my radar for a long time but you kept Kept dropping it on We Hate Movies and saying, you you want a good dead kid movie? Watch The Changeling. And finally, I'm like, okay, yeah, I will watch The Changeling. And it is amazing. I was really blown away by it. I'm glad that I could uh, help get you into the movie. I've actually spread the word about this movie to tons of people ever since I saw it. And, uh, you know, yeah, now that I'm on like a platform that's widely available to people, I will keep hammering home the message of seeing the changeling. Well, I gotta say, it starts off um, incredibly with this very idyllic family portrait of George C. Scott and his wife and daughter. And yes, they're having some car trouble out in the uh, the tundra of Canada, it looks like, or I think it's supposed to be the Pacific Northwest, but definitely a Canadian film. And we've got them, you know, even though the car is broken down, we're still having a good time and we're pushing the car and everything. And he goes to make a phone call to get some help. And the wife and daughter are outside and they're playing in the snow and everything on one of these uh, very remote telephone booths, which was great that these things existed until they get slammed by a car and run over by this huge semi. And that scene, it is more horrific to me than any other car crash scene I can think of in recent memory, except for the car crash and the descent to me. Or wait, it might have been uh, inside that I'm thinking of. 
Inside's the one with the uh, pregnant woman, and they're trying to cut the baby out of her. Right. I think there's a car crash right at the beginning of that one. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, you're totally right. Yep. I like how we go from this to, yeah, you know, actually you brought up the whole idea of grief and this movie so is about grief and it feels like a very adult horror film. So I'm amazed that being a, a younger person and renting this, like I can see where you would just be like, yeah, whatever, because this is so much more like a, a, a movie for somebody who's experienced loss. And by that time in your life, I don't know if you have experienced that much, but definitely not as much as George C. Scott has in this film. Well, and I also remember part of the disappointment, such as it were the first time I watched it, was I was used to George C. Scott being loud and yelling and bouncing, and he does a really admirable job of toning it in and keeping it very calm so you don't know what he's thinking or how much he's internalizing and watching it again this time i realized you know here's a guy who's just wrecked inside and probably doesn't have much of himself left and we're seeing this calm facade because that's what he can put together after five months he goes and gets a new job and is trying to get a fresh start. He's got some friends that are helping him out, and he's got a new job at a, uh, a college and uh, with where apparently he is very popular. There's a, a good scene in there where he has all these kids in his class, even though, what, he says like 28 people signed up for the class. Yeah, it's this like filled auditorium or something like that. It's the, it's the biggest lecture hall I've ever seen put to film, and he's packed the house. And he's completely non-surprised by it. He makes some comment like, well, there's only supposed to be 28 and it's not raining. Like, of course there's this many people coming to see me. It's you, George C. Scott, of course. Famous pianist John Russell is on campus today. We have to go see him. I would just say to sort of add to what Axel was talking about, which is that, you know, we remember George C. Scott for just like constantly screaming, you know, about everything. But it's kind of great. It's why this movie is one of my favorite George C. Scott performances, because you can just tell he's doing everything in his power not to be going off on these people and not Mm -hmm. screaming and yelling. So this whole movie, you're just like, this guy's going to lose it. You know, and uh, by the end, there is some screaming and yelling going on, which is great. But like that whole time, he's just a George C. Scott shaped powder keg. It's like we were holding a match so close to him through this whole movie. It's like, oh, yeah. Are you going to go, George? Are you going to go? How about now? And even when he does explode, you know, he doesn't hit 10. He's hitting like maybe a seven or an eight, which I think is really cool. We've all seen Jersey Scott at 10, and we don't want to see that again. He goes 10 in uh, Exorcist 3, which I just rewatched recently. That's like a 10.7. His wife is in this, George C. Scott's real-life wife, Trish Vandeveer. She plays this uh, woman, Claire Norman, the most involved real estate agent that you're ever going to get. Because most of the time, real estate agent, they're just like, yeah, here you go. Here's the keys. Take care. Make sure that my check cashes, and that's about it. But she's very concerned because he's got some problems. I think there's definitely some romance budding there. But she invites him to a uh, political function. So it's nicely – they hit it off pretty quickly, and she's right there with him through uh, most of the film. Yeah, I think she's got a thing for grief, this character, this Claire Norman. She kind of sees the misery that he's been stewing in and is like, oh, yeah, let's get involved in every aspect of this guy's life. What's interesting is I misremembered this, and I had thought the reason he was getting so catered to was it was part of the 
wooing from the school to get him to come there. And that's not mentioned at all. And I think that's just the way my brain reconciled the fact that normally your realtor doesn't come over and bring you furniture and things to hang on your wall. Is it just me, or does Trish Vanderveer sound overdubbed through most of the film? When was the highest occupied? Let's see, um, about 12 years ago. It's been with the Historical Society for the past 12 years. I never noticed that. I've seen this movie, no kidding, probably like eight or nine times, and I've never noticed that. I can't recall anything else that I've maybe seen her in, so I don't know what it is she even sounds like, really. Yeah, I looked up her filmography, and I I won't even say that she was dubbed by another actress, but Mm -hmm. just her voice seemed like it was kind of layered in afterwards, like maybe they had a bad mic on her or something. Well, I think one of the problems with her performance is that there's not a lot of there there. Whether it's dubbed over or not, it just doesn't feel like there's a place of, this is who I am, this is what I want, this is my motivation. I really, in all the times I've seen it, I've had a hard time finding a way to describe her to somebody else that would make sense. She hangs out. She definitely brings some interesting things to him as far as you know, taking him to that political rally where we get uh, introduced to the senator character that we're going to see a lot more of later, to the point where I kind of forgot that he was even part of the movie at first, but I was just glad that he was introduced there. And we get to see her mom, who is played by the woman who was uh, in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I think she her character name was something like Sister Woman. And uh, just a, she's got a great, great face. And mm-hmm. it was so awesome to see her. As soon as I saw her on screen, I was like, oh my god, I know that face. What I like, too, about this film is that it takes its time. You know, I won't say that it is slow. It's very deliberately paced. And I like this whole idea of the way that we get introduced to things in the film. And we have, of course, George C. Scott. I don't know why he would choose to live in the biggest, emptiest mansion around, but there he goes. He lives in this empty place now. And just the, God, that simple, simple thing where he's playing the piano and he leaves the room and one of the piano keys goes down. That is so effective to me. And that really kind of defines what this whole movie is for me. Just these little things that are going to start to add up, you know, things like banging and the, the, you know, allegedly it's the pipes making noise, all these kind of things. But I love the, the way that we go from the key of the piano going down to the whole house in flames by the end of the film. So it, it builds in the right way. Yeah, this is total uh, atmospheric horror. You know, um, another great one that sort of builds like that is uh, the Ty West film, House of the Devil, where it's, I mean, the pacing of these atmospheric horror movies are so deliberately, yeah, not slow, but, you know, methodical. And uh, it's very precise. And actually, I made the grave mistake of uh, screening this film in a uh, Halloween movie marathon that I was doing, an overnight marathon. And I played it in like the 5 a.m. slot. And everybody coming out was like, oh, man, this is so slow. And in my head, because I don't see it that way, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess for 5 a.m. this was a bad idea. But overall, like as far as the, the film and how it plays, if you're watching it at a decent hour, it's just amazing. The little scares. The other great one is the red ball just bouncing down the stairs. 
That's one of my favorite movie moments, like in all of horror. Well, yeah, and we get that ball a couple times, and I love the first time how it kind of plays into his memory of his little girl. And then, yeah, when it comes rolling down the stairs and to the point where he, what, takes it to the bridge and throws it off the bridge. And then when he gets home, there it is again. So good. And it's right there again. You don't have to wait, like, for another couple scenes. He gets home and the ball comes right back down. Don't worry, I'm still here. You can't get rid of me that easily. So this is, what, 1980 that this comes out. So we're definitely feeling some really strong 70s vibes with this thing, as as it was probably recorded in 79. So it has that kind of feel to me of other haunted house films and other paranormal films from the 70s. You know, we covered uh, The Entity a while ago, and this whole idea of, you know, paranormal research and everything, it's right there with this film, too. And it doesn't take over the film like it does in the entity but we have this whole thing of you know getting the psychic researchers in there and doing this seance and i have to say that seance scene is one of those standout moments for me and especially when they're asking we are here to help you what is your name Is there someone here you wish to communicate with? John. Help. 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 John. Help. 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 There's so much that comes together in that scene because you have the woman writing just the the rapid freeform writing, which is like kind of weird to watch. Then you have the guy who's like reading what she's writing. So you have this guy, you never really see him say the words. So he's just like coming in on the audio track to like say the things that she's writing. And the woman is doing my, one of my favorite lines in the movie that I like to attempt to do an old lady voice is when she's like were you the child killed by the coal cart and it's just like masterfully terrifying and it's quickly after that that we get george c scott playing back a recording of that and then having the voice of joseph on the recording uh, just oh man that was another thing and I, I love there's there's parts where joseph's voice sounds like an older kid or maybe even a man mixed with a child so you kind of get this like two voice thing going on just really great and of course that reminds me of a film that that you also covered andrew uh, white noise yeah, that movie likes ghost signs, too. Actually, more than anything, it reminded me of The Exorcist and the whole uh, playing back the Latin backwards and stuff. And it was but with English, really. Yeah, that same kind of paranormal science thing. And this movie makes paperwork and stuff very interesting as well, because really so much of it is now that they have the name of the child and what was going on, you know, even more than some of these visions that George C. Scott is getting, we have he and the Trish Vandermeer character going through and finding who owned this house, where was this, uh, there's a, a, a well that was on this other property, and just all these things that could be really boring they make very exciting for me. You know, just the the whole idea of like 
cutting through the floor of this house and finding this well. And when that there's a, a metal that plays into it, and we get that right away too with the, the the spirit Joseph, you know, asking where his metal is or he wants his metal back. Oh man, when that metal comes out of the dirt, it could be so cheesy because it's all kind of like reverse photography. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Photography, but for me, it was just like, wow, okay, yeah, th- this works. It ostensibly becomes a detective story. So so it's not like a horror movie where they're showing you this research. It's It totally shifts gears entirely to a – we're a detective movie now for a little bit. So it becomes – that process becomes interesting. And yet somehow they made that uh, little medallion scene work with the reverse photography. That would totally come off as cheesy, I feel, and, you know – most any other movie, but somehow Peter Medak found a way to make that work. And not only does it go from horror story to detective story, but then we kind of get a political thriller in there. Once he starts going after the senator, it felt very like Three Days of the Condor-esque or something like this. It was just like, whoa, wait, what, what's going on here? Now he's after the senator guy. And immediately I'm like, oh yeah, he could s- come off sounding like some sort of paranoid assassin guy. And he's there on the tarmac of the airport, you know, shouting about this metal and stuff. And I love how the senator immediately is like, oh, this guy's trying to blackmail me. And the way that he sends the one detective over to George C. Scott's house, just to pretty much like you know get him off the case i was like wow this now all of a sudden we're in a whole other territory but it feels very natural the way we shift genres in this yeah you kind of uh you kind of worry for george c scott in that runway scene because it is very paranoid thriller and we're right in the 70s still so you're still feeling all of those movies like parallax view with warren Beatty and everything and you're like man george c scott could probably like legitimately be assassinated for this move he's making right here you couldn't have found a better way to get in touch with the senator than just storming the plane. I had a very like visceral reaction when he's storming that plane as like, you can't do that now. It's, you know, you can't go back to that time in America. Those Secret Service agents, they wouldn't have even hesitated to put two in his chest. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed having a political thriller mixed together with a horror thriller. I didn't think I would like those two genres together, but... By the time it gets down to that end confrontation scene, I, I really think it works. Oh, yeah. We've got Melvin Douglas, who had been around forever. I think he passed away the next year after The Changeling came out. And his reaction to everything, for some reason, I know he wasn't the same actor, but he reminded me of the guy from uh, Creep Show who wanted his cake. You know, he's pounding his cane on the wheelchair and stuff. Maybe it was the wheelchair that did it for me, but. He, He's got this great face, and he's just so sour about everything. And to play that scene is pretty remarkable, because here we've got Tracy Scott coming in and being like, hey, your father wasn't really your father. 
you were somebody who was kind of secreted into the family after your father murdered the person whose place you took. This, like, what, 80 years prior or something, maybe even more than that. I, I don't know how old Melvin Douglas is playing in this. I mean, talk about a, a crazy scene, really. And just the way that it plays out, I, I felt that it was very true to the moment. And I love how, you know, the first thing that the Melvin Douglas character does is try to get out the checkbook. It's like, okay, how much do you want? You know, I'm just going to pay this off. I don't care what you're saying. And he's not even really listening to anything. And it's not until we get that medal that things really kind of change. It's kind of great in that scene, too, how fast he goes to that checkbook. It always makes me wonder what else is going on with this Senator Carmichael character that he's like, oh, another one. All right. How much do you need? Yeah. What are those other stubs for that old timey checkbook that he's got? <laughs> when I first watched this movie, I remember feeling like you know he was totally blindsided there. And when I watched it as I was older, I couldn't help but thinking that he kind of knew. And I also thought, what would it be like to be at my age or at his age and to realize that you exist because somebody did a horrible thing, and could you ever get past that? Which is a great question for a movie like this. You don't expect a ghost movie from 1980 to have any sort of weight to it, but this one does in so many ways. And We've talked about the loss and the grief and everything, and then have this as well, and it doesn't play it off light you know we're not just like skating past it or anything you really get the the weight of the situation you sit there and you have those questions for yourself it's just like wow what what would that be like especially what would it be like if you know this guy not only has he had this political career he has all this money to his name because of his father and the family fortune but i know he's got a wife and kids and grandkids. I mean, basically his whole family is based on this huge lie from the past. That's so funny. I've never thought of, you know, this movie, I guess on that level, but that is like a totally devastating thing. And while you were describing that idea, I, I don't know if you guys have seen it yet, but the new film out, uh, 45 years, not yet. No, it's kind of a similar thing, like your entire existence, like everything you know to be your life being predicated on the death of another person. Very strange thing. What kind of, you know, Sophie's choice almost. It's like, yes, we know how it affected Sophie, but how would that have affected the, the living child, the one that she chooses to live? You know, what what would that be, have been like to be? <laughs> I, I don't want to sound like uh, Harry Potter or something, but the boy who lived, the child who lived, what would that have been like? That dovetails nicely with George C. Scott's character, who was also the boy who lived and who has to have that survivor's guilt that he's been handling on to. In some ways, they're very similar, but in other ways, they're very different. Yes, to be a father who outlives your own child has got to just be a, a terrible, terrible experience. Because you think of the world that they're going to have and going to inherit and that you're going to see them grow up as you get older or even if you passed away, you know, just knowing that they're there for the rest of their lives. But then to see that taken away from him was really just tore your heart out. So there's some really good moments in here. I talked about the uh, piano key. You talked about the ball. But I have to say the other thing is when – Shit just gets crazy at the end of the movie, as horror movies are wont to do. When the wheelchair, Joseph's wheelchair, is there chasing Trish Vanderveer around the house, 
I was on the edge of my seat. I was just like, I've never seen a wheelchair be as scary as this wheelchair. And again, that's another thing that shouldn't work, right? If you think about it, like, that's a ridiculous thing to have happen in a movie. But somehow it still manages to be frightening in this movie. Well, you can compare it to the wheelchair scene in Nightmare on Elm Street 3, where the wheelchair comes after the kid who is normally trapped in it, and it doesn't come anywhere close to as frightening as it is in The Changeling. When you get those great, like, almost POV shots of it, and just it, it is just screaming around there, and she is running for her life away from this thing. And I'm surprised that she even survived because she falls down those stairs with the wheelchair, and I'm surprised that she even is alive at the end of this film. But I guess they have to have that moment of George C. Scott and Trish Vandeveer being alive at the end so that they kind of, you know, have conquered everything. The end of the film with uh, the the senator back in his office and the desk starting to shake. And I love how Melvin Douglas's face just doesn't really even change. He just seems like not surprised at all that this stuff is happening to him. And then getting his kind of almost um, uh, his spirit or whatever in the house and revisiting all of that. And the again, uh, a great, great visual of the banister on fire. And uh, of course, I'm thinking of like Barton Fink as I'm watching this, but just this amazing image of him walking up those steps with the banister on fire, the uh, yeah, banister, I'm thinking of the right thing. Just brilliant and just so visually intoxicating. It's a good-looking movie. Uh, you know, it's a movie that's really, really shot well. And that whole, yeah, that whole final sequence of him as the old man, kind of just wandering in that house. I think that look on his face is a real like. Well, I always knew this day would come. Like somehow, even though he's like an eighty-year-old man, or you know, however old he's supposed to be, like this, this was still a long time coming for him. In rewatching this movie and looking at Peter Medak's filmography and seeing he's gone on to direct a lot of the most popular television shows on TV, I think you can see it in this movie because when things are normal, everything's straightforward, easy to watch, Hollywood style, and then when it gets to the big set pieces, particularly the end, it's completely remarkable and heart-stopping. And I think that that style lends itself very nicely to shows like Hannibal and Breaking Bad. I didn't know if we had mentioned the murder earlier, and like when that had happened, I just blew right past it. But yeah, let's talk about it. I thought that was the most clear and knowing nod to the haunting with the banging that you find out is the child being drowned in the tub to be replaced by the healthy child that is the changeling. I thought that banging reminded me a lot of the noises you heard throughout the haunting. The imagery uh, of like this, you know, being this kid being grabbed by his ankles and like held. Up, you know, it's like you. I totally didn't see that coming the first time I saw it, and it like blindsided me. And I'm not one for like being disturbed by movies, really. I could kind of watch anything, but like something about the way they got this kid in slow motion and then in your head putting together it's him banging on the bathtub, you know, that's what I've been hearing this whole time. Like, it's just like it's really, really well done. The way that his father is holding his feet together, which just shows the powerlessness that every time I watch it, that upsets me a little more. And just that the father felt that he was able to do this, to do this horrible act just because his son was sickly. 
You know, just I want a better air for my fortune. It just, oh, God. And I know that, of course, that kind of stuff had happened throughout history and everything. But when it's made so much more personal, when you're there seeing the murder and seeing the, uh, you know, hearing the effects that it had on the victim, you know, giving the victim a, a voice after death, just, man, oh, man, just really does a number to you. This is one of two scenes where the movie also reminded me of Angel Heart. Um, with the murder of someone who was innocent, and the other part being the medallion reminds me of the dog tags that later on reveal at the end of Angel Heart who a character is. And Angel Heart wasn't that much longer after this, was it? I want to say maybe five or six years. I just remember, you know, hey, Lisa Bonet is nude. That's that's pretty much all I remember from that movie. Nude with blood dripping on her, is that right? Nude with blood dripping on her, and I think there's some voodoo slash Catholic strong imagery going on, which at the time Bill Cosby had a very strong moral opinion about, which seems different now. We don't know that he dripped blood on anyone or did any voodoo rituals. This is true. Do you think he also had um, like ethical beef with Robert De Niro's beard in that movie? I think more with his fingernails. If I'm recalling correctly, he's got a... Oh, yeah, and the nails. Yeah, he's a gross character in that movie. But neither of those two compare to the horrible, horrible visual effect yellow eyes that show up in the last part of the movie. You remember that movie much better than I do. I got a thing about chickens. Okay. We're going to take a break and play an interview with the director of The Changeling, Peter Medak, after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. music 
Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies. <laughs> iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com. The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. Out. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one the projection booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Wonderful. And we just had a screening here at the Cinematheque uh, last week for like a thousand people. You know, they keep screening it on and off, you know, the movie. And, uh, it yeah. was, it, you know, I had to do a whole Q&A and all that, you know. And sometimes you can watch the whole movie, and sometimes you're just absolutely numb to it, you know. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen it a few times. Yes, over the years, of course. What do people ask you about the most? Oh, was this a real story? Is it really a true story? And uh, stuff like that, you know. And and uh, you know what it, you know, what was it like to prepare for the film? And I mean, it's all different, different things. It depends, you know, who is doing the Q&A and, and, and then on the audience, of course. And a lot of the people have not seen the movie. It was the first time that they've seen it. And a lot to do with that. It is a true story, definitely. Uh, you know, that there was this changeling and this switch had taken place. And there was a senator and there was this well. And there was all those ingredients apparently existed. You know, and then it was put together by some clever writers. But that's how it all came about. But that was before I turned up, you know, because when I turned up, it was already there. That was a finished script. And, uh, uh, you know, then we changed the script a bit, you know, but it was basically all there. Did you grow up in Hungary? Yes, I did. But up to age 18, I did. I did. I was there until, you know, from... But I was born until 18, and then I escaped out of Hungary and came to England. Was that during the revolution? Yes, during the 56th revolution, and uh, yeah, that's when I got there. And then I started um, very quickly in the film business at the time, you know, as an apprentice, and then started learning about the whole world and uh, English and whatever, everything. And then gradually you kind of accumulate your kind of bearings and knowledge and then, and then you carry on. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But that's how it all started. It was a brilliant, incredible period at the time. Yeah, it seems like London in the 60s, England in the 60s, was such a happening place, especially for the arts. Yes, it was amazing. Amazing. And it was, you know, it was before the Beatles had surfaced, you know, so it was the very beginning of of, uh, the cultural kind of change of England. And it was great to witness the old part of it, you know, while it still, the old days existed and how it then gradually changed into kind of modern times. What were some of your early films like back then? Yeah, I started working on a television series in London, but then soon after that was over, there was an American series in, in, in England called International Detectives, and that was around 1959, maybe 1960. Oh, so you got started really quick when you got to, to London. But it took me about three years to get through kind of understanding how films are made and to work through every department from the kind of stills department to the sound department to uh, the dubbing stage to the projection department to the camera maintenance department, all kinds of useless things on the surface, but they all were very, very useful and each little thing led somewhere else. So that was quite incredible. And then eventually I then become a clapper boy and then I moved from working in London to Astrid Studios, which was one of the studios which this company owned, which was a company called the Social British Picture Corporation. And there I started working on movies. And then I was very lucky and very quickly worked on like within a couple of years on on about six or seven films in various capacities, you know, third assistant director, second assistant, and all that, you know. I think the first film of yours that I saw was Negatives. Yeah, so it was 1968. You see, so by 1968, a lot had happened because I um, went on the contract to Universal Studios in 1963, and I came to Hollywood for the first time. And then um, I was here for several years working on all kinds of things. Uh, I met Mr. Hitchcock. He was doing uh, a film called Marnie, and then I spent a lot of time watching the Alfred Hitchcock half an hour 
things and then gradually drove everybody crazy about directing and then I eventually came back to England working for them uh, where I started directing on one of the television series in London at Pinewood Studios and by then we were at 19 uh, what were what year were we then 1963 uh, yeah, I went to Hollywood 64 65 it must have been 66 
And I remember right after ruling class, I went and did uh, Space 1999, and everybody thought I'd gone completely insane. And I wanted to do it because I wanted to work with those actors, you know, and I mean, what is two, three weeks out of your life? And, and you meet a whole bunch of new set of people and actors and stories and, you know, and I, was, I always loved doing that. And, but nowadays it's changed very much because now, you know, way, television has become better than movies, some of it, you know. It's completely accepted, you know, and allowed to kind of float back and forth. But, you know, in this business, everybody loves to categorize everybody into a slot, you know. And uh, um, I always hated that, and I love to do different subjects and stuff. So um, I, I love moving about. And television is just the same as movies. It's just that you have much less time to do it in. It's very important to do different things all the time. Right. You've been working consistently since you started. You seem to have just been going all of these 50 years. Well, on and off. I mean, I know of lots of gaps, you know, but it's very difficult to notice it from the outside. But, of course, there are times when you're not doing anything and uh, you want to kill yourself, you know, and, and it's like a prison sentence. But then suddenly things start again. So it's it's up and down. It's it's a... Uh, it's a very uneven life of a director, you know, unless you really hit the big jackpot, you know, and then uh, you're constantly working kind of every second of every year. But I'm used to it. I'm used to working very hard and then not doing anything and then working very hard again and then not doing anything. And so it's got its, its own time. Do you get to at least relax a little bit in the downtime? or Not not very much, because what happens in the downtime, you're working on four or five different other projects, you know. you know. So you're always working with other producers, writers, or meeting, or reading, or arguing, or fighting. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a wonderful life, though, you know. I, I wouldn't know what else to do. I couldn't change it anymore. It's too late for that. It's been wonderful because the actors I have been able to work, the fortune of working with them, uh, it's, 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 it's magic because it makes you incredibly rich. Your experience with them and, and uh, your friendship, you know, whether you see each other or not continuously, it's immaterial. But it's like even Miss Glenda Jackson, you know, I don't see her sometimes for years. And then suddenly we're together, and everything is exactly the same as it was, you know, in 1968. It was a long time ago. So your, your relationship kind of, they kind of go into a freezer and until you see each other the next time. And then it rejuvenates itself. All you have to do is see each other for two seconds, and you're back where you were then. So that's, that's a wonderful aspect of it. And, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of them had passed away, but the memories is like, uh, it's just everlasting. With, with, you know, poor, you know, Peter O'Toole has passed away. Alan has passed away. George Scott has passed away. And it's, it's wonderful to have known each other. One of the movies that you did that I really appreciate was The Rocking Horse Winner. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. It's such a great adaptation of that story. Yeah, 
God, I have to see it. I haven't seen it for a long time. But it, it was a very dear friend of mine who was a very famous novelist friend. And he had to sell his country house. And uh, in a way, that's the reason I did it, you know, because I shot a lot of it in, in this friend of mine's country house. And um, I wanted to put uh, that house onto film as a memory for to this friend of mine because we all had such incredible times over many years, dinner parties and everything. So it was nothing to do with the movie, but then it, it came my way, and I thought, my God, the irony of the problem of the money, and everything was about the money, uh, completely coincided with this wonderful friend of mine, who was a brilliant novelist and also a scriptwriter. And uh, he later on then moved to America and then... Uh, but but it was an it was a, a, a incredible moment in life for me to do that and so emotionally a lot of that has gone indirectly into it. You said that when you came to the Changeling, the script had already been written. Where was the project at as far as coming to the screen? Well, they, they actually the film was going to be made by a different director before they came to me. Somebody called Donald Camel. And he only wanted to make the movie if he could make it as a black and white film. And so they got into big blows with the producers and they parted company. And then somebody, a friend of a friend, called me up in England saying, would I read this script? Um, and I read the script and I was petrified when I read it. It was so scary. And uh, I agreed to do it. And a couple of weeks later... I was in Los Angeles and then in New York and Seattle and Vancouver where we shot a lot of the movie. And then we all agreed to make it together in color. But I purposely did it very much. It's very diffuse, so it's more or less black and white. If one gets a right print, and then you can see that it just has a little color in it. So it was wonderful. It was fantastic working with George um, and also, you know, with Trish Vanderweer and uh, Melvin Douglas. And uh, I mean, there were sensational people, incredible actors and incredible commitment. And um, it's just one of the great memories of my whole career doing that movie. Was there a real house for the Changeling, or was that a set? No, it was a set. What happened that the original director was going to shoot the film in a house which did not look haunted. And when I seen that location, I said, well, I can't make the movie. And uh, and they said, well, we can't afford to build a set. I said, you got to build a set, otherwise there's no film. And uh, so we had a very stiff conversation that evening. And then uh, on the jurors, they agreed to raise another million dollars and then rebuild it. And so the interior of the house was completely built from the ground floor up to the top. And the exterior of the house was a facade, which was kind of leaning against or constructed against that house, which did not look haunted. So we built that uh, with this wonderful designer who created that exterior, including the garden and including that long drive when you can see the house kind of 
a long, long distance away. And it was just the magic of creating sets, which was great. Absolutely wonderful of what one can do with very little. Yeah, the interiors are just amazing. Some of these shots with just it looks like the ceilings go on forever and just that distance to the attic just goes on for it looks like miles sometimes it's just so high yes yes it is and i use these very wide lenses you know to i mean it was a huge place i mean the set was enormous going from the music room to the hallway and then up the stairs and going into the library the other way into the kitchen and it was all interconnecting so I could move from one room to another without any uh, interruption and the whole set was built for that and uh, it was an amazing achievement really Judy was boring hello then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com it's my little escape now Judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy Judy the Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. All, the, all those years ago... And of course, I mean, they built wonderful sets in Hollywood, you know, in the 30s, in the 20s, and, and all that. And, but it's, 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 it's a very important part of that movie that it looks like that. And I mean, I remember some of the reviews were criticizing that nobody in the right mind would stay in a house like that. But I kind of disagreed with that, you know, because if you are, have receptive to or you believe that, the, the, you know, particularly which George Scott, George Scott's character was because of his daughter who got killed, that it may be his daughter who's haunting, then you would be rather attracted to it rather than frightened from it. And absolutely, you would move into a house like that and, and really try to tempt if there is a growth for that to appear in a way. That opening of the film is just so horrific, just tears the heart out of me. Every time I've seen this film, it still is so effective. Yeah, well, it's, it's wonderful to, 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 to see it with a full audience and a, a full big screen and actually be projected film on it, you know, because it, it's so beautifully shot and um, photographed and... and um, it's 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 kind of a very perfect creation of something which is completely artificial, but it feels completely real. When the editing of the film, I mean, the pacing and the editing and everything, when you choose to reveal something versus not, the use of sound when it comes to you know the haunting and everything. You're right. It just it all fits together in such a perfect puzzle. Yeah, but it's it's it's. 
it's a fantastic premise to work with, you know, to try to um, kind of uh, scare, kind of, but in a very clean way, psychologically, to frighten an audience, you know, just by the movement of your camera or by the cutting speed of the film or how you set up certain shocks or, you know, how you timing them. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful art form in a way, I think. I know you shot this in probably 79, going on 80 kind of thing, but do you remember, was it a fairly easy shoot or were there any challenges for you? No, I mean, there were lots of challenges in that whole opening sequence, you know, uh, because it was incredibly cold in Canada where we shot it and uh, and dangerous with the ice and the, the big truck slipping in the ice. And, uh, and you have to be very careful how you do those things. And um, it was, yes, it was... Ch- it was challenging, you know, because George C. Scott was a very gigantic actor, and uh, you had to kind of handle him with uh, kid gloves, you know, in a way. But I had no problem working with him, and he was incredibly receptive and and very curious, you know, what I was doing with the camera and the angles and what lens are you putting on and what you're doing now and it's all that kind of stuff and. But it was fantastic. It was fantastic working with George. Never will forget it. And it's so interesting because in the film, the most unimportant parts of it, of his performance, are the most important part of it, you know. When he's probably walking across an empty, silent room, you know. I never forget it, you know, when, when he thought that he heard a noise by the door when he's playing that piano scene. And he goes to the door, and then he walks back to the piano. But just the way he walks, the tension in his body is so astronomical. And it's a, really it's a sign of a true actor when you don't need 12 pages of dialogue, but he can express it so easily of what it's like to do that successfully. And he was brilliant at that. I have to say, you really shot it well as far as him being a musician. And I don't imagine George C. Scott plays piano, at least like he did in the film. But you shoot it in such a way, and he acts it in such a way, that it doesn't look phony, because that can happen so easily. Oh, absolutely. But he could he could play a little bit. So that there is a bit of it which he plays, you know, at the beginning in, in that uh, music school. And... Uh, uh, he, he kind of knew how to play. It's the same as Gary Oldman when Gary did um, that Beethoven movie of his. I mean, because Gary was a great friend because we did a movie together. So I, I remember he used to call up every time he learned another concerto. He said, you've got to come over to the Sunset Marquee and listen to this. You know, he was so proud. And he, they, they're brilliant. These actors are brilliant. Because A, they know how to fake things, but B, they really go to endless trouble to actually do the real thing. I'm glad you brought up Gary Oldman because Romeo is Bleeding is definitely one of my other favorites of yours. That is, to me, very unappreciated, but such a great kind of neo-noir and just the acting in that is top-notch. Yeah. No, it was wonderful. A fantastic time on it, of course. And uh, 
I mean, working with Gary was magic, and Juliet Lewis, and Annabelle Oskiora, and then Roy Scheider, who was a great friend, and we'd done a couple of other things together. And it was just, again, fantastic. It was a fabulous chance to pull something off, very intense, and, and uh, you know, but it's so long ago, it sometimes just fades away, in, uh, fades away into infinity the whole picture, but then suddenly a photograph falls out of a drawer, and there it is in complete kind of vividness. The whole, everything is back again. And you can never forget it, you know. Oh, I couldn't. The experience of it, and it, you know, as I say, it lives with you forever, and it doesn't matter whether we see each other or not, but that experience is there for all of us. Some of those shots of Lena Olin are still with me today. Just just her as being such a great, great character. Yeah, she, she's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And I had the fortune to use this magical uh, DP cameraman, and I'm very proud of it that I'm the one who used him for the very first time, who's Polish, and his name is Darius Wolski. And he then went on right after Romeo and became one of the greatest DPs in the world. And he then went and shot lots of Ridley and Tony Scott's movies and shot uh, all the pirates of most of the pirates of Caribbean films. And he's just a sensational kind of dark. He likes very, very dark, you know, loves shadows and it's, it's wonderful. It's more or less black and white, you know, but it's in color. I was um, so surprised. I didn't realize for a long time that you had done both Let Him Have It and The Craze, which were just kind of a one-two punch of just tremendous crime films. Yes. Again, it was luck, you know, that it came my way. <clears throat> and both of those movies, they, they like... Um, go hand in hand those two films because one is really about grown-up violence which is the craze and the other one is more about kids you know after the second world war messing about and it's more about juvenile violence of how how dangerous it could become in a split second if one doesn't look out and uh, both of them are true stories, really true stories, because they existed, Reggie and Ronnie Cray, and also uh, Christopher Ackerson played, you know, Derek Bentley, who was the boy who was hung in the 60s, late 50s of London. And uh, I adored making those, because by then I was living in America, and I was dying to go back to England, and both of those movies are very, very... English films, like it comes from a whole different era. And uh, I, I was just very blessed, you know, that I was had the chance to make those two movies, you know, and they become new children in a way, those films. I mean, I just have to go back to London next week because next week after next is the 25th year anniversary of the craze. And I can't believe it that 25 years have gone by since that movie, which it has. And so there's a big kind of celebration at the British Film Institute. And uh, I got, uh, for that movie, I got um, 
kind of the best director award, uh, Evening Standard Award, which is quite a big, very important um, kind of recognition uh, uh, of people's talent, you know, and uh, those awards are very important in England. Not as important as the Oscars, but comparable, and uh, I'm very proud of it that I've got that, you know, and John Mills and Richard Attenborough, both of them have passed away, but they, um, or I think John Mills, I'm pretty certain he's passed away, Uh, but they together gave me the award, and and it was lovely. I was so pleasantly surprised by the performances that you got out of the Kemp brothers for the craze that they just did such a good job in that. And I wasn't sure going in what to expect from them. Well, they, they, they were, they, they're amazing actually. And they trained as actors before they become singers and before they formed the, the Spandau Ballet band. So they, their, their strengths and their experience is acting which they haven't used for many years, but then when we did the craze, it came incredibly useful to them both. And they were wonderful in the film, I thought. Yeah, I'm interested to compare the craze to the new one, the one with... Yeah, Tom Hardy, who's also a brilliant actor, and I think he's phenomenal. And I have not seen the new movie yet, you know, uh, but I had heard lots of comments seeping through England, you know, uh, saying uh, 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 Mr. Hardy is absolutely brilliant in it, you know, but uh, it doesn't compare to your movie. But it may be just people saying it, but I have not seen it yet. But ironically, the the British Film Institute is screening my film on the 27th, and about three days later in the same theater, they're having the first preview of of legend, you know, and it's so wonderful that the two films are following each other. Absolutely. And why not, you know, make another movie, you know, out of it, you know, but, but, uh, I, I would never have done it because I feel, you know, that with that, I've done that whole period. And, uh, at one time I was going to try to do something else when Reggie came, Reggie Cray came out of prison because he had leukemia and he was dying and they released him, and I thought what a wonderful film one could make about him coming out into a world which he had lost completely after 30, 40 years later, and nothing make any sense because uh, times have passed him by. So I would have loved to have done that, but the Kemp brothers didn't agree to it, and then I said to the producers, you know, well, let's see what you can do, you know.
All right, we are back and we are talking about the changeling. This has come up in conversation on We Hate Movies a few times, but mostly in the vein of creepy kid films. It's nice that we don't necessarily see the creepy kid in the changeling. I almost think it's more effective. But creepy kids are they've been a staple of horror films for a long damn time. Oh, yeah, without question. There's tons of eerie kid movies out there. Um, you know that, that you can go back. I mean, what like uh, Village of the Damned is one. Those movies, those are some eerie kid movies. One of uh, my most recent favorite eerie kid movies, the film Goodnight Mommy that came out last year from Austria. That's eerie twins, which is even worse. It's like those little girls with purple hair from The Simpsons. The, the, those two always freaked me out. Uh, another one I did want to mention, though, real quick, uh, that was so underrated from last year was a movie called The Boy. David Morris is this hotel owner and his kid who's like a little eerie, but it's like him spending this summer sort of realizing that, oh, maybe I like killing animals and, and people. Oh, 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 this is kind of fun. Uh, and it's just this like it's very slow. It's like a horror drama almost. Um, but, yeah, you see this kid's like magic summer you know coming out party as a potential serial killer very strange movie well hold on a second wasn't david morris always also the father and the good son yeah he sure was this guy's got a bad track record at playing <laughs> what the hell man keep kids away from that guy yeah i don't know he should stick to you know george washington and cops cops without kids or carrying the virus around the world that will kill all of us and just leave the uh, the 12 monkeys. Oh, that's right. I forgot that's on him, too. David Morse, after he got off of uh, St. Elsewhere, he just was nothing but bad news. Even when he's like trying to be the helpful father to Jodie Foster in Contact, I'm just like, look out, Jodie! Uh, Don't trust him! Contact. Yeah, exactly. Don't trust him. The other thing I wanted to mention real quick was just thinking about this whole idea of, you know, there's so many of ghost movies, uh, the, the main premise is trying to set things right that were wrong. And that is completely what the changeling is. You know, this kid was murdered and we have to solve the mystery. You know, this is a mystery film at, at its core. And then we also have to kind of make things right. There needs to be balance in the world. And I don't know what it is, but like right now, I think we're going through a fallow period on TV. But there was a little while where it was like every network had its own people who talk with ghosts and settle the score kind of shows. And then I didn't even realize like so, – so there was Medium and there was Ghost Whisperer. And then there was one called Reigns with Jeff Goldblum. Uh, if you guys remember that show, I'll be very impressed. because I, I, I do remember Reigns. Nice. I, I don't remember watching a second of it, so much so that I didn't know that there was a ghost thing involved. <laughs> I, I thought it was like Jeff Goldblum was just like some detective or something. Well, I thought that he was schizophrenic because it came right out. Uh, it came out right around that time of like Eric McCormick was schizophrenic. And then uh, the guy from Dark City. Uh, he was in one where he was like a detective as well. Uh, and I thought that those were all three kind of lumped in together. And, and then poor Tyler, the bean, I didn't re realize this, that he was in dead last like years and years ago, where it was this band who uh, they <laughs> ran into this guy who might've been played by Dwight Schultz and they had to solve mysteries, very Scooby-Doo esque, but it was like, you know, dead people and everything. And then to find out that he's in one now called deadbeat, where he's now 
also solving mysteries. It's like this poor guy can't get away from solving mysteries for the dead. And I think that might be might be the only one that's on TV right now, but that was like a real popular subgenre for a little while of solving mysteries for dead people. Oh, most definitely. You also had um, Dead Like Me, the Showtime show. Oh, God, yeah. Which was, that was on and had like quite the uh, cult following. And then there was like Pushing Daisies on ABC. Something, something kind of bringing people back from the dead by touching them. And then I suppose iZombie is kind of doing that now where she eats the brains of the dead people and then takes on their personalities and helps solve their deaths. Is that what that show is? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was some weird Apple product at first when I heard the title of it. It's one of those titles that's so bad. It's like you're really doing your best to make me not interested in you. I've heard people say that it's good, but it's like, I don't know that I could just ever say out loud, I'm watching a show called I Zombie. I am watching the show that I won't name, and it is actually pretty good. And I have to say it's better than Medium, albeit maybe not as good as Ghost Whisperer. And I have to say, of all of those things, I really like Dead Last the most, but I think it only lasted about six episodes. <laughs> I think anytime shows like this, or their so-called truer contemporaries, put together the solving crimes and solving children that have passed, it's a way people can sort of feel better about things that aren't supposed to happen. I mean, you're supposed to give Born with a Chance and not have to deal with having all these physical infirmities. And then if you are born that way, you're not supposed to have to deal with your father drowning you in a tub. Right. Yeah, you're supposed to be protected, especially if you're born so innocent and so helpless, and everyone should be protecting you. And if you end up being infirmed, people should be looking out for you even more. And yeah, not just uh, taking pot shots at you to, to pass on the family fortune to somebody who's a little bit more limber. It reminded me of Pet Cemetery. The scene, with, and I know this is a, one of Alexandra West's least favorite moments, with the sister who has the spina bifida, I think. Oh, Zelda. Zelda. Yeah. Who always reminded me of Iggy Pop. Whenever Zelda would show up on screen, we'd be like, hey, it's Iggy Pop. Well, and now she'll remind me of Iggy Pop, too. I have to say, if people enjoy scary, creepy kids and good ghost stories, uh, another one I have to recommend is The Haunting of Julia, which we covered on the show probably about a year and a half ago. Very, very effective film, and also, I believe, a Canadian film. So the, these Canadian kind of tax shelter films of that period uh, definitely had some good ones amongst uh, amongst some not-so-good ones. But for me, there were um, some very effective films made during that time. After Stephen King had Carry Out and was, was becoming a bigger name, um, and we had already had that boom of Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. There were a lot of just paperback pot boilers, you know, like the guy who wrote the, um, the Entity that later became the movie, also wrote Audrey Rose. And there were a lot of books about a nice home environment and a ghost from the past coming back in of that period. And I think that The Changeling is a really good example of that done right, because most of those books and films, with the exception of Stephen King, weren't that good. Yeah, I was very surprised that this wasn't based on a book, that it was uh, just a story idea by Russell Russell Hunter, and then adapted by William Gray and Diana Maddox, and so it was not... Uh, you know, I thought it would be one of those um, buy it at the checkout, you know, right next to uh, Flowers in the Attic kind of yes. thing. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm picking this up at the grocery store to read at the beach. 
We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be one of the last people on Earth? What would you do? The inside the end of the world makes me a little nervous. Where would you go? The stars are ahead! Well, get ready to find out, because the comet is coming into your orbit. The legal drinking age is now 10, but... You will need ID. Let's be real. It's the night of the comet. Thank you, Nick. I come back. Night of the Comet. I'll be taking requests from all you teenage comet zombies. The night the teenagers rule the world. Yeah! Night of the Comet. Environment of civilization is on. It's in That's right. We'll be back next week with our big fifth anniversary show all about Night of the Comet. Until then, I want to thank this week's special guest co-hosts, Alex Cohagen and Andrew Jupin. Axel, how many times do people demand that you give those people air? All the time. Back when I was a teacher, that would happen, I'd say, two or three times a year. And I even bought a CD from a band on Bandcamp once, and they wrote me a personal note back asking for air. <laughs> I didn't give it to him. I'm glad that it's not just me that thinks of that as soon as I hear your last name. My wife has never seen Total Recall, and so... Really? No, I I keep trying to get her to, but she's more in charge than me. But she has to learn what that reference means, because a lot of her coworkers have made that joke over the years. (laughs) So, Andrew, by the time this airs, you will be one week into your listener request month at We Hate Movies. Will your appearance on the projection booth help sway you somehow into covering Under the Rainbow? Uh, As much as I would like to talk about that uh, terrible Chevy Chase movie, I have to say that this this listener request month is being uh, selected all at random during a a lottery-type thing. So no amount of sway, unfortunately. We're picking these at random literally out of a hat. Um, so yeah, you know, fingers crossed for, for under the rainbow. You know, when you say terrible Chevy Chase film, you really have to define exactly which one you're talking about. Oh, well, this was like, you know, you you could say like it's a early eighties, terrible Chevy Chase film, which is completely different from like a mid nineties, terrible Chevy Chase film. Cause you could be talking about modern problems. Ooh, oh, I could be talking about modern problems. Yeah. That's another one. Also, I'm not crazy about memoirs of an invisible man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> would you place that above or below the ward that's above the ward okay yeah everything's above the ward everything <laughs> well speaking of uh children of the damned how about that uh stellar remake with christopher reeve imagining a brick wall through most of the film <laughs> You know, I've never seen it. Yeah, you're in for a treat. <laughs> it's just saying that. It's worth it for about three minutes when the whole town passes out, and when they wake up, one guy passed out on the grill and has basically deep fried himself. <laughs> and it's a horrifying way to die, and it, it creeped me out, and then the rest of the movie just blows. Well, thank you again, guys. Thanks for coming on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Be sure to stop on by the Projection Booth website at projection-booth.com to leave us some feedback. 
link on over to our iTunes page and rate and review the show. And, you know, visit our Patreon page, donate some of your hard-earned cash. Those are just a few ways that you can help the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.